0: Hi all, Jack here, welcoming you to the Just Hands Poker Podcast, the show where we completely break down a hand of live, low stakes, no limit hold'em cash. This week, on the occasion of our very special guest, Daniel Negreanu, we're going to bump up the stakes and talk some ARIA high roller strategy, as well as some questions for Daniel, such as how he thinks the game has changed and what still motivates him to put in the hours. If you haven't checked out last week's episode, Zach and I discussed a listener hand where our correspondent flopped middle pair in a royal flush draw against two really loose players in an MGM 2-5 game. All right, thank you guys so much for tuning in, and remember to head to justhandspoker.com after the episode to check out more great poker content, including a complete software-aided breakdown of today's hand. Thank you guys, and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, Zach. Hey, Jack. How you doing, man?
1: I'm doing great. I'm beaming with excitement. How about you?
0: I am absolutely beaming with excitement. Uh, we have easily the most recognizable name in poker today, uh, Daniel Negreanu here on the show with us. We're extremely excited. Uh, thank you for joining us, Daniel.
1: It is my pleasure, gentlemen. Daniel, we heard uh, you have a hand for us.
2: Yeah, well, actually, it's, uh, I've got a whole bunch that I'll be putting together for my next podcast on Full Contact Poker. Uh, I did an all strategy one. I'm gonna do another, but I'll give you guys one specific one that that took place uh, this last weekend when I played the 25k's at the Aria High Rollers. And obviously, when you play in these things, you're playing against all the tough cookies and the top cookies. And you know, you want me to just go right into the hand?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, uh, and, and and as much kind of like backstory, you know, as you're able to give in terms of like your history with the people you're playing against uh, is much appreciated
2: okay so this is a weird one because something weird happens it's the there's you know it's the the big high roller so we pretty much know everybody at the table um we have a player break go broke right so it's a situation where there's a dead small blind the blinds are 500 which is the pretty early stages and uh so brian Rast. Saw the blind out there and thought, oh, you know, so he limped under the gun, like mistakenly. And it was very obvious that he did not mean to limp, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, clearly he was like, oh, shit, he thought he was big blind. So he limps for 1,000. Um, I'm in the cutoff with two queens. So I decided to make it 3,000. And, you know, you could argue that I could make it a little more, uh, considering there's more dead money out there. But I thought I'd just go for three. Tom Marchese, one of the best poker players in the world. Calls on the button, and so the both blinds fold. And Ras, since he's already got a thousand in, he's like, he's not, he's pretty stubborn. He's not a guy that likes to like fold when he's got money in there. So he calls the extra two thousand.
1: Do you know the average like the the average stack at that time, as well as the stack sizes of, of the two different players just before we head to the flop?
2: Yeah. Well, in this tournament, you start five hundred to a thousand blinds for the first three levels, and you start with a hundred k in chips. Okay. So everyone's a hundred big blinds deep, and that's roughly. Um, the case Mm here. And and ultimately I didn't add that because it's kind of irrelevant to the hand and the way that it plays. It doesn't actually mean anything. But yeah, so anyway, the flop comes five-deuce-deuce with two hearts which is an excellent flop for a hand like two queens. You know, in a three-way pot I've got Marchese calling the button. Very unlikely he has a deuce. Now Rast, on the other hand, he's, you know, he had that goofy situation where normally a guy limps under the gun, calls a raise, he doesn't have a deuce, but this is different. So anyway, he I decide to bet 5,000, you know, relatively smallish on the smaller bet. Not, not actually not small, pretty standard, I'd say. Um, And of course, cheese folds, oh, cheese, cheesy. and Raph calls from the big blind. So when he calls me here, I put him on a lot of different possibilities. He could have a five. He could have a gut shot with a hand like ace four, ace three. He could potentially have a flush draw. And of course, the deuce is still possible. Uh, Him having a pair higher than Queens, I know is impossible, right? So... Really liking the situation. So,
0: you, you already said he's going to be uh, calling the big blind fairly wide. Do you think he's going not have many offsuit deuces in his range? Uh, you know, ace deuce, offsuit, king deuce, offsuit, uh, or just probably, you know, some of the better suited deuces?
2: Well, those two specifically, ace deuce, king deuce. I definitely think offsuit would be in his range based on the way the, the, the hand played out. Um, but other than that, you know, I don't think queen deuce, jack deuce, offsuit every suited deuce, virtually every single suited deuce I think is in his range.
1: Right. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And just to the to the bet sizing Daniel, so you bet like 5000 into an approximately like $10,000 pot, right? Yep. Yep. So, do you feel like you're betting your entire range on this board texture with a sizing like that?
2: Yes, is which is kind of why I did. If you know, if I have a queen there and I'm betting, I'm usually going to bet about five. Um there was Ten five exactly in the pot I don't do the 30% post-flop bets like a lot of the younger guys have, have done and I think that they will adjust that strategy once they figure out that there's some, some holes in it long term so I like to make my bet size a little more substantial so that people don't float quite as cheaply and don't get to turns and rivers without having to pay a little more heat and it also helps to find their hands a little bit more when you make a little bit bigger the size okay So, moving to the turn, the turn is literally, you know, considering his range is probably the worst turn I could see, and it's a five. So now the board is five, five, deuce, deuce with two hearts. He checks, and I'm faced with the dilemma of whether I should go ahead and bet this to protect against the flush draw. Uh, The danger here, there's a lot of danger in, in that my range is somewhat capped, in that it's very unlikely I have a five or a deuce, and he is a really strong, good player that may turn a flush draw or a gut shot into a bluff with a check raise on the turn. So ultimately, against a player like Brian Rast, I decided it was a better play to check back on the turn.
0: Yeah, and that makes total sense, because I think yeah, you're really likely to get raised by any sort of semi-bluffing hand, because I mean, he, he could easily have all of his deuces at this point uh, in all of his fives, and it's just a huge part of his range, so yeah, I think it's a clear check. I
1: agree. Uh, Daniel, do you feel like Brian is maybe going to be like from an exploitative versus game theory perspective uh, standpoint, do you think he's going to be check raising like exploitably often against you in this spot because he has such a range advantage?
2: Uh, Somewhat. Yeah. And so that's why for me, when I'm considering this bet, if I'm betting here on this turn, I'm betting with the intention of actually having to call the check raise only because Brian is capable against like, you know, a guy who is, you know, from, from from middle America, 65 years old, wearing a cowboy hat, <laughs> praise me here. It's a pretty safe fold. Against Brian Rast, you can't really put yourself in a spot where you're so exploitable, where he can check raise you in this spot and you fold. So that why that, that's the reason I think that, like, it just makes a lot more sense to check uh, check back the turn. And it, it also allows me to maybe pick off some, some bluffs if he had a hand like 4-6 or 3-4 that misses the river. He may now turn that into a bluff, which I can bluff catch with Queens, right?
1: Yeah, I guess the reason that I asked is my my first instinct is that a check is best. But if if Brian, in this particular scenario, especially maybe because he made the mistake of putting the blind in, if you think he's going to be just check raise bluffing you too much, you know, you could kind of bet small with the intention of just call and calling it off on the river. Right. uh... Typically not, not
2: the type of situation I like to put myself in tournament poker. Spots where I'm going to have to guess for a big significant amount of my chips, and every time I'm wrong, I just screwed myself, and I just have to hope. If this is the one, you know. I, I don't like to put myself in tough spots, and I think checking is just the optimal play there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I think betting with the intention of calling is sort of both checking and, you know, bet calling seem like somewhat zero EV plays or slightly plus EV, but uh, not super high EV plays. And bet calling is just a, a lot more variance, and yeah, I think in a tournament doesn't make sense. I also think that this card is so bad for our range. Brian has, I think, actually a lot more fives and deuces than uh, drawing hands here, or at least a ratio that's you know unfavorable com- compared to a lot of situations where there's uh, a lot of semi buffs possible and a bad card comes to us on the turn. So yeah, yeah, I absolutely think check.
2: Right. So my I, my intent was to check this turn, with all intent to just call it off on the referee. You now he's going to probably. I'm assuming he's going to bet two thirds of pot when he bets. So I'm planning on. You know, paying it off because I've obviously under-repped my hand with the check back on the turn. For the river card, I mean, I thought the turn was bad for my range. <laughs> the river worse. The river the four of hearts. Okay. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now he, he decides to bet thirteen thousand uh, when that card hits. So I'm going through all the possible hands that I can beat and wondering whether or not he would bet them. You know, some of those hands I could beat are ace four, three four four six. The question is. Does he turn those hands into a bluff? Every other hand, like Ace Three, Two Hearts, a Five or a Deuce, I lose to. However, it is Brian Rast, right? Yeah. So, so it's uh, you know, it's just just a tough spot to be. And I elected to fold because I just felt like there wasn't enough that I beat. And, and even though Brian Bra- Brian Rast is like a crazy wild cookie player, you know, even like crazy wild players sometimes hit something. So you know. <laughs> So it was a weird spot but I, even though i have queens which is like seems like too good to fold for a lot of people who may not you know understand the dynamic of the situation as well it seemed like a, uh, an easy lay down on the river actually mm-hmm. i i think
0: folding because this is such a horrible run out for us uh i agree i think folding is correct i'm trying to think just as sort of a thought experiment like how many better hands do we have because you know well, I think it's okay on, you know, the worst possible runouts, this being one of them, to fold close to, if not our whole range. Uh, Queens does strike me as potentially one of the best hands you'll have here. Uh, I guess you would probably open, you know, ace-five suited from the cutoff. Do you think you have any other fives in your range?
2: Uh, not not likely, you know, although because it was a unique, weird situation where he limped incorrectly, you know, there, there's the case to be made for raising with hands like five-six suited, uh, in that spot but uh, i wouldn't say that and if, you know, even if, and if i did have that hand i'm always going to bet the turn yeah because it looked like it so why would i have the hand and check back on the turn so i would say by yeah. the purpose, there's just no way i have a five and i think he knows that
0: yeah i agree and i think you might not even bet it on the flop
2: well i think i would actually against two players one you know calling on the button and one player in the big blind uh you know bait essentially in the big blind i think I think you should should bet a five six on a five boost two, two sport on that flop to just avoid the myriad of bad cards that come on the turn that just give somebody a free give the pot for free.
0: Yeah, multi way. I I I can definitely get behind that. Uh,
1: another part of this thought thought experiment is you know obviously Brian Rast as you said Daniel he'll have two four suited in his range, but he'll also have like pocket sixes pocket sevens pocket eights in his range right he's probably not three betting those. Well, I mean, those are all possible. Although, again, part of
2: what makes me a skilled player like that's different than online is gauging the reaction of when he limped. Mm -hmm. It it clearly being a mistake that he wasn't happy about. Whereas with sixes or sevens, he's fine. He probably would have raised with those hands in the one hole anyway. So I didn't think that he had a pair. It, It was more like, oops, I've got myself in a pickle with a bad hand, but I'm getting priced in, so let's call. So I don't think sixes or sevens, he makes the same kind of... Uh, physical reaction with those types of hands. Okay,
1: yeah, that's important. Uh, because, yeah, I, I think I think if you didn't have that physical read, just because this is one of the best hands you can have, it might be a lot closer to a call, because this he's probably smart enough to know that, like, you know, it might be correct to turn those hands into a bluff against you when it's, like, such a good run-out for his range versus yours. But if you could take those hands out of his range, you know, even if he does bluff with those kind of few hand combos you identified... He still just has so many value hands here. So I, I can get behind the fold as well.
0: It's kind of funny. Like The worse his range is pre pre-flap, the better it is now. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, one of the few boards where that's, that's <laughs> true.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a funny hand. And I mean, it, I think against most players, it's a pretty clear fold. Uh, y- you have to be pretty maniacal and optimistic to show up with like enough bluffs here i think, yeah,
2: oh. I would think that, like i would have called him on this river obviously with a deuce or if i'd made a flush on the river i think that hand's probably too strong to, to fold depending how high it is like frankly my hand is essentially the, pretty close and since i rule out sixes and sevens my hand is the same as like a seven high flush um yeah yeah so unless i had like I guess the right hand to, to make for it to be different would be with like jack high or better in terms of flushes, but you know folding seven, eight, and nine high flushes because it's essentially the same hand as queens.
1: Yeah, he's he's probably gonna. You would say he's he's gonna thinly value about like a nine high flush here, right? I think he's betting hundred percent of his flushes. Okay. Yeah.
2: You know the question yeah. is if you have uh, you know if you have an eight high flush or a nine high flush. Just based on simple math, you know, he's if he has a flush, he beats you, like what I don't know how, like ninety nine percent of the time or something. Cool. Well,
0: yeah, that's yeah, that's gross.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, well, I know that that was in the early stages. Uh, I think probably a lot of our listeners already know how you uh, what your results were in the event, but if for the rest, uh, there's no TV coverage or anything of that, right? So you can you can go ahead yeah, and spoil no. it. Okay
2: that's just a weekend you know they're kind of fun they're a little turbo-y near the end once you once well, they start out relatively deep but once you get past like four hours they're kind of crap shooting all-in turbo style things but they're fun and i didn't do any well any good i mean any well <laughs> it was a re-entry tournament i fired a couple
1: bullets at it but uh in the
2: end i didn't cash
1: so when you play these tournaments what what's like your main motivation for you know for firing like a a weekend 25k well, these are the first ones that I played. I played a hundred K they had
2: there before. And of course I played the super high roller bowl,
1: mm-hmm. which
2: is going to be a hundred thousand by them. For me it was, I haven't played a lot of poker recently and I wanted to practice a little bit for the super high roller bowl because these are the types of players I'm going to be facing against. And you're at a distinct disadvantage. If you're playing in an event where everyone knows each other's tendencies and you don't, uh, have mm-hmm. that same knowledge. So I really wanted to get a feel for what people are doing, um, in the court, and also, you know, I, I did a video blog about the weekend, and also plan to use some of the hands to, you know, talk about it on a, on a future podcast. But mostly, it was just to stay sharp and, um, you know, play against some of the top players. It's interesting
0: that you have an like with those small tough fields. It's interesting to have an opportunity to to practice for a larger event. Uh, I feel like that's not to the same degree as something that most poker players who are, you know, playing in certain fields are going to have an opportunity to do. Uh, So it's sort of just an interesting situation for me to think about being in. Uh, Well, I wanted to ask you, at this point in the game, uh, in your career and at your sophistication as a player, how, how do you approach, you know, continuing your poker education and learning more about the game?
2: Well, frankly, um, it hasn't changed all that much in the 20 years, surprisingly. I don't uh, – I, I didn't go to the school of Fedor Holtz where I grew up with spreadsheets and breaking down ranges and, you know, cutoffs against seven players versus nine players and stuff like that. I, my um, study is typically uh, watching, watching tape, kind of like, you know, an NFL coach would watch game film. I, uh, I like to go over what my opponents are doing. Um, And really the best way for me to learn how to play better or to, like, keep sharp is by teaching. I know that, you know, for example, I did a mixed game. I won a horse tournament on the W WCOOP last fall. And me and Jason Somerville, we went over every single hand in a video. And just the process of doing that reinforces a lot of things, opens up my mind to new things. But for me at this stage in my career, it's less about learning to play the game better and more about being more mentally prepared than my opponent's.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you're watching that film uh, or that analogy, I guess it's more literal, but are you mostly watching to understand your opponents better or to, I don't know if correcting your own mistakes is the right word, but to evaluate your own play?
2: Well, I mean, obviously I see the hands that I play and I, you know, I, I analyze them, but I typically do that right after they're done. Uh, this is mostly for me to you know, sort of, for example, Fedor Holtz is a guy who's obviously done really well the last year and a half. I haven't had a lot of experience with him uh, playing against him. So I want to see what he's up to next time I'm up against Mm -hmm. him. So I have an understanding of like, like I know that not knowing who Dan Coleman was when I lost to him heads up in the one drop and not really knowing his tendencies probably cost me that tournament Um, because I might've played a little differently knowing that he's not the crazy young wild pre-betting, you know, goofy kid. He's pretty solid and, and, you know, just has it. So I do that. I look to see, like, kind of what type of situations these guys look to capitalize on, what types of situations they're folding on that I think might be leaks. And on top of that, I'm looking really for physical tells I can rely on that reinforce things that I may have already thought. And I keep notes on that. Like I have a, a notepad in my phone um, that has a wide variety of players with specific physical tells that I find on them. And um, you know, whenever I play against them, I look it up to remind myself.
0: That's really cool cuz I I mean I guess in your situation it's you're just getting a lot more pain for your buck like for your time spent actually studying the opponents you know you're going to have to encounter both in these high buy-in events and likely at some final tables here and there. Uh but I'm curious you know your your skill in the main event is highly prodigious and the game has evolved a lot. So I in my mind like the sort of upper echelon of strategy, maybe, maybe you disagree with this, but in my mind it has you know, increased over the years as people have put more thought into the game. And so there's, I guess, maybe a wider chasm of skill level uh, and people who fall into various slots along that. and are you, you seem to be just really gifted at putting people on the right level, and I'm wondering if that's become more difficult over the years or uh, if it's just gone at a pace where you've sort of managed it as it's happened.
2: So, so, so for Wretches, the game has changed, and it will always change in terms of bet size and pre-flop. We're seeing like, trends back to the way things were, like even 20, 15, 20 years ago, with people upping them. I would say that it hasn't changed nearly, as much as it has changed, it really hasn't changed that much. Poker's still poker. I would say that um, intellectually, the best players in terms of the way they approach the game has changed dramatically. So now, typically, you know, guys like Isaac Haxton, for example, He's looking to play GTO, game theory optimal. He's looking to have be balanced in all situations. He's factoring in blockers. Like that's the probably like the buzzword in the last two years has been blockers. You know, mm-hmm. like well, because oh, like I had the four hearts blocker. I'm like, okay, whatever you say, buddy. Like, but um, but that's probably the one thing that people are using in order to um, kind of make decisions. So, for example, they're like up against the guy where they they think. either has the flush or he doesn't. And if he doesn't, you win. If he does, they lose. So they'll look in their hand and see if they have one of the flush cards. And if they do, they call. If they don't, they fold. So they're not basing it on a read of the player. They're not basing it on the situation. They're not basing it on history. They're basing it simply on, um, you know, the range they put them on and then whatever sort of clues that they may have in their hand in terms of a blocker that could sway them that way. And it's a different way to think about the game. Certainly, you know, for online poker, it's, you don't have physical tells, so it's it's a lot more viable there. I still think the physical tells supersede that in terms of a, a way of approaching the game.
1: Do you feel like there's some players you play against that do such a good job of concealing physical tells that like your your large edge that you have against most of a, most of your opponents doesn't really work against those kind of more elite players?
2: No, for sure. I mean, there's plenty of guys that I play with all the time, and I've got no notes on them whatsoever. Yeah. I have no notes specifically on like physical tells, but you know you still are going to find. Okay, I know this one guy when he's blitzed and he's really high and he smoked a lot of pot. He's more likely to make overbet bluffs when he's so. <laughs> you know he's more likely to play a little snug in the early positions. Okay, I'm not talking about Bryn Kenny. Don't worry. Well, yeah, yeah, but <laughs> 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 but yeah. So outside of physical tells, you just get sense of what people like to do. Because, um, you know, when you think about tournament poker specifically, ABC poker isn't the way in which the very best players succeed. They always have something specific they do differently than everyone else that makes them special. And it's important for me to know what types of tricks are that these guys like to depend on, whatever they may be.
0: So do you think that sort of individuality of strategy is more of a hindrance or an advantage I mean obviously it could be both uh, to varying degrees, but you know since that's what you're looking for, it sounds like a player who maybe doesn't depend on any tricks per se is going to be someone who's going to be a lot harder for you to crack
2: well maybe I don't know like again, I, like I said, obviously there's a new trend in terms of a lot of people focusing really really hard on playing a GTO style, playing gambling up, and I actually think it's misguided, I really do because. Tournament poker, when you're playing live especially, you'll never hit the long run where it's relevant enough to be totally balanced in every situation. What's much more of an effective strategy is being exploitative and looking for holes or looking for trends in opponents or, or taking advantage of how people perceive your game. And that's probably the most valuable tool a skilled player can have is the, is the self-awareness of understanding, okay, this guy in this spot knows I never bluff, so what can I do here to steal this pot? Sounds like you should bluff.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Daniel, is there any like? Have you ever done any type of personal study in regards to game theory that you feel like has helped you become like a more exploitative player, like better or better exploit people in game?
2: I know. I would say definitely not. (laughs) Most definitely not. No. Um, I mean, if I was twenty-two or twenty-three and I was just starting out in the game, I would highly recommend having a deep understanding of game theory optimal play and because, because it is prevalent now uh, with a lot of the other players, but I'm, I'm not in that place anymore. Like I'm, I have a good life and I don't necessarily um, spend my free time doing the work on that stuff. And frankly, if I felt it was necessary in order to be successful, or I felt like it could really help my game in a big way, I still would, but I really don't because tournaments are unique in that. um, I just don't think it's, I think if you were going to be a professional cash game player, then you definitely want to focus on being balanced in spots, especially if you're playing against the same people. If you're playing in tournaments, I don't care if everyone else at the table knows that against that against this guy, if I'm betting 80% of pot, I have it, and when I bet 55% of pot, I'm bluffing. I don't care if everyone else at the table knows that. As long as the guy I'm up against doesn't. All right.
0: So you mentioned you know, some advice you have for up-and-coming uh, maybe lower stakes players today. Uh, is there anything else you'd recommend uh, to today's you know fresh crop of poker players?
2: Well, I would say that you know one of the best ways to learn, in terms of the way that I did, is to talk to talk through hands. So after sessions, whether you have whether you're playing online and you want to you know have the hand histories or jot them down and actually discuss them with a with a peer group of people that can actually maybe open up your eyes to different ways to play it. I'd also say the biggest mistake most young players make. Almost all of them, and I made the same one too, is to underestimate players that came before you. That you know, you think, well, they don't know what they're doing because they don't play GTO or they don't know this or that or this. They'll surprise you. A guy like Dole Brunson, who's 84, and you know, people might mock the way that he plays because, um, like, oh, that's definitely not you know plus EV. Uh, underestimating people like that is a huge mistake because a guy like him, uh, who's been around a long time, has other uh, skills and traits. So I think be open minded to different types of playing styles, and don't just shut them down because you think you 've done the computation to prove that this guy's a bad player because he did x, y or z
0: yeah i think I think that's sound advice, and I, don't, we're, I think maybe we 're being subtly contrarian, but I, you're definitely speaking our language uh, We try and be very Exploitative on this podcast, which tends to be pretty easy since we mostly talk about low-stakes cash games, uh, which are sort of a hotbed for exploitative opportunities.
1: Yeah, I, I, think th- I, I think kind of what all three of us agree, that like the vast majority of the time, almost all the time, when playing like low-stakes or when playing tournaments of, I guess what you're saying, any level, you, know, you should really be exploitative close to 100% of the time. Uh, But I think from Jack and I's experience, we've gotten a lot of value from studying game theory because it's helped us become more exploitative, you know, like understanding better how an opponent is truly like really capped here allows us to, you know, increase our bluffing frequency way more than we kind of feel like is necessarily correct in the moment after we run like, oh, wow, if they're going to fold this much, well, that means we can bluff all the time or, you know, situations like that.
2: Yeah, no, there's definitely value in doing that sort of thing. And I think that uh, one of the things I guess I have a nostalgia and appreciation for is old school players who kind of did this instinctively. Yeah. And they did it mm-hmm. instinctively to just know, like, well, this guy never has this or that. Well, he can't call me here if I shove. You know, it, was, it wasn't like <laughs> down a range. It was simply like, he ain't going to call me right. now because he can't <sighs> have this for that. Um, so I have like, and, and, I do, and I do believe that like ultimately the best players who reach the, the highest levels they have an RNG that's naturally built into their brain. They also um, just kind of get there anyway without actually do- – I mean obviously maybe they could fine-tune it by doing the work on, uh, and, and you know studying game theory. But I think like the naturals, the real just poker players who just figure it out, uh, they, they get there anyway despite not really knowing that they got there. So a lot of terms that you guys coined today that are used – uh, are plans that have been made for 20 years. They just didn't have a name, you know, like floating. There was no such we didn't know what, there wasn't a, there wasn't a term. We just called it, I, I used to call, I wrote a column, I think years ago, called Call with Nothing to Bluff Later.
0: Yeah. Well,
2: venting the wheel. It's simply, um, you know, getting, you know, it's scientifically breaking down the things that have been going on for the last, you know, 20 years or so. I'm positive
0: you're right. It's interesting bringing up specifically floating because we did an event. We did an event with Greg Raymer where he made a statement along the lines of like floating wasn't a thing in 2005. Yeah. Uh, and then like this one specific opponent of his sort of invented it and. Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. Well, I can tell you this. I've been doing it since uh, I don't know, say 1999. So maybe I invented it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'll let him know. <laughs> uh, unless you, unless you listen to this, Greg, shout out.
1: So Daniel, so Jack asked, you know, what is some advice you have for the young, you know, the young up and coming pros um, in terms of, and you know, you kind of talked about improving their game, but in a more kind of just like thinking about life in general, advice. You know, would you recommend people, generally speaking, to get into poker now? Is now you know a good time for you know? Young, hardworking people to make a living playing poker—is it going to make them fulfilled? Is it going to, you know, bring them happiness, not just cash?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, it's an interesting question. It's loaded, and I, and I have to say that it would depend on what they're looking to do. And the first thing I would say to any young player who's thinking about using poker as a way to make a living and live a balanced life is, "What is your vision?" Okay. And when I say that, what I mean is, "What exactly do you want to create?" Okay. So the guy says, "Maybe I want to make a lot of money." For what? To accomplish what? So that I can live a life of abundance and freedom. Okay, so what does that look like for you? How much money do you need to make? And really come out with a solid five to 10-year plan of what you want it to look like. And then realize that this isn't all blitz and glamour, that you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices if you want to do this well. When I was that age, I sacrificed partying, going out, meeting girls, the whole deal. And I was sitting at a poker table eight to 10 hours a day. And then when I was done, I was going over the hands in my head for two, three hours, wake up, do the same thing the next day. So um, I would say just really have a clear plan and you want to find some balance in your life too. If you don't have a vision for why you want to do this and you're just making money for the sake of making money, you're doomed. I promise you, you are doomed to find that like there's no meaning in life, if you will. It's really important to say, okay, I'm doing this because of this. I want this in my life. I want to meet a woman and have kids and I want to support them through poker. Whatever it is for you specifically, get clear on it before you jump down this journey because what you find is and I see this with a lot of people today, they're just going through the motions. They've been doing it 5 6 years, they don't really know where they're at, they don't know where they're going because they haven't really sat down and thought about a clear vision for their life.
0: Well, it seems like you've found a lot of meaning in your own life outside of poker, but I'm curious uh, I was reading through your 2017 goals, and uh, you, you seem to have a, a, some long-term goals to be atop certain poker leaderboards. And I'm just wondering how you're finding balancing those ambitions with you know, other passions you found in your life.
2: It's actually gotten easier and easier with age because when I, make that, when, I, when I write that goals blog every January, I think about the year ahead and what I'd like to accomplish and whatever my vision is in my poker career, and I write them out. Once I've done that, I don't really look back at it until the end of the year. I'm not attached to the result. Uh, I'm just clear on what the journey is that I'd like to embark on. I do so. And at the end of the year, if I hit zero of the goals, obviously, I, you know, I'd rather hit some and it's, it's, a, it's an accomplishment, but I don't get down on it. I just go, okay, let's readjust and look at some other things. Um, but I'm very careful about the goals that I do set now uh, that are within a framework that allow me to have the balance that I want, allow me to do the things that I want. Outside of the World Series of Poker, you don't see a chunk of play in terms of what I've got scheduled. Just the World Series of Poker is special to me, and it's a lot of fun to grind hard that month or so. But uh, outside of that, I have plenty of time to you know, get to the gym, to work out, to create content now for, for the poker community, to make a difference for people that I coach and things like that.
0: I'm sure you've talked about this you know, at length, but I'm curious, and I'm sure our listeners are curious, why... You're so keen to give back to the poker community in terms of the content you're creating. I wonder if you could elaborate on that.:
2: Well, I mean, partly, uh, I don't necessarily like need money anymore. I've kind of you know, uh, gotten to a place in my life where uh, I'll be safe the rest of my life. And I've always enjoyed creating content. I've been doing video, I've been doing YouTube videos for I don't know seven eight years. I took a a long hi- a hiatus from it. And uh, just realizing that there's a thirst in the community for um, poker content and, like, poker hand breakdowns. And obviously other people are doing that, and it's been, you know, very popular. So I thought, well, why not throw my hat in the ring in there? And it's also an opportunity. What I, My long-term vision and plan with it is to make the channel into more than just a poker channel. Right now, you know, I'm doing the Monday and Thursday videos. Uh, I'm going to do, like, a video blog every few weeks or so. And then, you know, the podcast – but I'd like to expand past that and do some much more like inspirational type uh content that's more mainstream and can maybe make a difference for um a lot of people who are struggling with whatever it is they're struggling
1: with. Are are there any books kind of just broadly speaking that you would recommend to for people to read because it, it just based on the way you're kind of like talking about like your vision and goals it sounds like you know this is this is coming from a you know something that you've learned over over your years and I'm guessing that there's some literature that uh, people would find helpful, uh, you know, to achieve their own goals.
2: Yeah, no, I've def- I've certainly read a lot of books and um, a lot of books that reinforce what I. I, I did a course about four years ago uh, called Choice Center in Las Vegas, which is about emotional intelligence and really touches on all these specific things in terms of goal setting and a lot of that stuff. And I found it-, it was very, very effective. On top of that, I've read a lot of books. One of them, which I think is a really easy read for your listeners, it's like 140 pages. You can get through it in one sitting. It's called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, and it's essentially four basic principles for living an abundant life, and I can just give you the four because it's very simple. Number one is be impeccable with your word to yourself and to others. So if you say you're going to do something, do it. Two, don't take anything personal. Someone says you're ugly, say thank you. Just It's neutral. If they say you're pretty, it's neutral. It's not personal. Third, Don't make assumptions. Often we make assumptions about what someone thinks or that or this is going to be this, this is going to be that without actually going to the source. And number four is the most important one that ties in the other three. You're going to break your word. You're going to take things personal and you're going to make assumptions. You're human. Do your best. That's number four. Do your best to, you know, focus on, you know, those four principles and you you just notice that it's so much more attainable to have the dream life and and live in a, imagine this. Imagine like, Everything that you said you were ever going to do in your life, you actually did it, right? The chances of you actually living your dream life, so much more likely. But when you say things like, oh, I'm going to start eating better, and I'm going to start working out, and then you don't do it, well, guess what? Yeah, you know, the dream life that you're, that you're dreaming of is not going to happen until you start being impeccable with your word, not just to others but to yourself. So four agreements would be top of my list. Daniel, we don't want to take
0: too much more of your time. Uh, but you know, we'd love to give you an opportunity. I know we've talked about the website, the podcast, but is there anything else that you're working on, you're passionate about, you just want to tell a chunk of people about right now uh, before we let you go?
2: Well, right now, like sort of my passion project is, you know, with a YouTube channel that is going to be, you know, you can get through Full Contact Poker, and that's where the podcast is. So working on content, you know, it was one of my goals this year was to create a lot more content you know, cutting some video blogs has been fun, giving people uh, an insight into sort of my life. So Mondays, I'm doing like a poker tip that's geared towards maybe the amateur beginning player, mid, you know, me, you know, mediocre player. And then Thursdays, we're going to get into some hand breakdowns that are a little more intense. Um, and, and that's going to be the rolled out schedule for at least, you know, the rest of the year. So that's basically it. You can find, you know, subscribe to the YouTube channel and you won't miss any of them.
1: Awesome. Uh, well... Daniel, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, hope you have a great rest of your night. And, yeah, thank you for everything, not just this. I mean, speaking for both Jack and I, like it's not the first time we're hearing your voice, and you've been instrumental in you know both of ours and many people's development in, in poker, whether as a profession or just love for the game. So, truly, thank you.
2: Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And good luck to you guys. I hope you crush it. Hey, guys. Thank you
0: so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to us on iTunes and check out some of our other 62 episodes. Also, head over to JustHandsPoker.com and check out our blog and other great strategy resources.